The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. Yes, welcome again, listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's business channel. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery, joined today once again by the other co-host of The Steady Investor, and that is Mitch Zacks, the Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. Uh, We haven't had you here for a while, but good morning, Mitch. How are you? Good morning, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. We've moved to our new offices with these tremendous views. Yeah, quite nice. It's a very nice office, and so we're very excited to be here at uh, 227 West uh, Monroe. Right downtown Right downtown Chicago Loop, and we're ready to go forward here. Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, And for those of you who listen to the, The Steady Investor on a regular basis, Basis. I wanted to give out our phone number real quick before we get started um, to call in Zach's Investment Management right here in Chicago. You can dial 800-918-3114 to discuss at length your risk levels and investment strategies that are best suited for you and your family. And for more information, you can email us at info at ZimWealth, Z-I-M for Zach's Investment Management, wealth.com, or visit our website, uh, ZimWealth.com. All right, Mitch, let's get started. Uh, Dow 20K, we've never seen this before. We've been... Uh, it had been teased uh, since the Trump rally got got going. Uh, we said, well, it's a possibility, and we opened up uh, today's market over uh, 20,000 on the Dow for the first time ever. Um, big deal, overstated. How do you see it? It's not a huge deal. You're going to con- – our expectation is that over long periods of time, broad market indexes like the S&P 500 and the Dow – uh, should appreciate at around uh, seven, 600 to 700 basis points, or 6 to 7% on an annual basis above the risk-free rate. So if you take the 7% number, you say the, or take the 6% number, say the risk-free rate is 1%, you're, you're uh, appreciating at about a 7% annualized rate. After about 10 years, you should see a doubling of the index. Okay. So that what I would say is that not – it's interesting that we hit Dow 20,000. What this would say is that in 10 years, we should be at Dow 40,000. Wow. And so the reason is because you're you're increasing, your returns are compounding over time. So it, what, what happens is as the, uh, as the Dow gets higher, the chance of hitting a bigger number gets, gets increases. Mm-hmm. So it takes, if you start the index at 100, it takes 10 years to get to 200. It takes 10 years to get to 400. It, gets, it takes 10 years to get 800, 10 years to get to 1600, 10 years to get to 3200. Now it starts getting, you know, oh, now it goes to 6400, then it goes to 1200. Now you're at 24,000. So again, what's happening is that you're, you're talking about uh, compounding over time at a 7% rate of return. Mm-hmm. There's not that much stock people should put in beating these milestones. Uh, what people should take away from this is that look what's going on in the market today with the Dow uh, hitting uh, you know 20,000 and think back to where we were in 2008 and 2009. 
and uh, think back of the emotions that people felt in 2008 and 2009. Right. And so it's very important to realize then the depth of uh, sort of negativity about the market. What the U.S. markets really are, are the triumph of the optimists over time. And that if you can remain optimistic in the face of uh, sort of negative news or negative events in the market and not get shaken out, you participate over time. If you had gone back to 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, and each year said the Dow is going to hit 20,000 in 2016, people be like, oh, no, what about China? What about Europe? What about the Greek uh, banking crisis? What mm-hmm. about the collapse of the U.S. Uh, financial system? What about the mortgage crisis? You know, every year. There was a list, and they were real events, and were real issues. But what happened over time is that interest rates remained low, and now earnings are starting to recover. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that you know we're going to hit 20,000 and we're going to immediately start going up. What's going to happen is the same thing that happened historically. There are going to be events and negative events in the market. It's going to cause the market to sell off. Those people who change their allocation in the face of these events are going to be hurt over the long period of time. Mm -hmm. Those people who are able to, I don't want to say ignore the negative events, but not change their asset allocation in response to negative event one, negative event two, and negative event three, and instead say, I believe in, you know, the market, that the market goes up over time. It's very clear that that is what happens. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's been going up a long period of time uh, since about 2009. That is immaterial for how long it continues to go up. The market is very much like a fractal. Every period of time has an expected up period, uh, expected chance of going up of about 67%, an expected chance of going down of about 33%, regardless of what's happened historically. So the fact that the market's gone up for this many years or last year or last month or whatever uh, is not going to have any bearing on what's going to happen next. Okay. So what you're looking at really is the triumph of the optimists. And it is very hard to be optimistic in 2008 and 2009, but that's exactly the course of action that generated the best returns for people over time. Okay. Now we're seeing a new administration, uh, and it seems like Trump has gone right to work as far as getting things, uh, looking toward uh, deregulation, looking towards uh, corporate tax structures. I think we'll see. I think that's what we're seeing as as far as the over- I wouldn't say over exuberance because you're saying it's an academic thing. It's not over exuberance, right. but you're saying this is where the this is the positive outlook is is stemming from. Would you agree with that? There are numerous events. If you look back at the market, starting with the election, or uh, you know, in early November, markets have uh, been doing very well. Mm-hmm. The main reason is that there are things that the administration are is proposing to do that are very negative. And there are things that the administration that are proposing to do that is very positive. And I'm not talking about just from a qualitative or a positive economic. I'm just talking from a, a, a earning standpoint of corporations. Sure. So I'm not trying to evaluate it qualitatively and say this is a good use of the government or this is a bad use. I'm saying the uh, the policies that are proposed, whether they help corporate earnings and whether they help stock prices. What would dramatically help stock prices is a lowering of the corporate income tax rate. And the reason is that if a corporation is paying income taxes at you know 40% and the corporate income tax rate falls to 20%, the after-tax earnings that accrue to investors increases dramatically. Mm-hmm. And that's not a one-time increase. It's not like they, they sold a, a, an asset. It, it's a permanent increase over time. 
So that would cause earnings in aggregate for the S&P 500 and for the Russell 2000 to increase. Now, it should help the earnings of the Russell 2000 of the smaller cap stocks more than it would help the earnings of the larger cap stocks, because the larger cap stocks have more tax shields that they've implemented through sort of essentially creating IP offshore, licensing the offshore IP uh, to the U.S., and then recognizing the earnings in low tax uh, uh, you know, geographies. So large multinational tech companies are telling tax uh, people that you know most of the profits are made in countries with very, very low tax rates. Sure. And look in the U.S., there's absolutely, there's no profit because look, we license the uh, information, we license the software that's really developed and is owned by the Irish subsidiary, blah, 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 blah. And mm -hmm. there the taxes are zero. So the taxes in the U.S., there's no profits in the U.S. All the profits are in Ireland. Well, that's great. You don't have to pay taxes in the U.S., but you have all these cash in Ireland. You can't get over to the U.S. And so the other thing the administration is doing is they're trying to get people to uh, get companies to bring the cash back uh, domestically and sort of invest it. So it's very, very positive, the tax policy. It's very, very positive, the infrastructure spending uh, that is being increased. What's negative is sort of the prohibitions on trade uh, that are being proposed. And what the market right now is it's taking, you know, you have these two positives, which is the increase in, uh, in infrastructure spending. Right. And you have this uh, increase in, uh, you know, cor decrease in corporate taxes. And you have this negative negative of, uh, you know, uh, the negative of effectively increased uh, trade tariffs. And you have a positive of lower regulation, but that doesn't translate very easily into differentials in earnings over the next two years. It just makes uh, businesses more likely to expand effectively. Right. The market is focusing on the positives, discounting those positive effects, moving the market, and not focusing on the negatives at all. Right. Is that because the negatives are harder to kind of see clearly compared to what you'd see from the positive effect of a, of a, a corporate tax cut? I think it's because the market is anticipating the positives are going to go through and the negatives that are being proposed are going to be, quote, jawboning or not going to be substantial policies. So the market is acting as if it expects a cut in corporate taxes, an increase in infrastructure spending, and uh, no change in uh, trade policy or very, very little change in trade policy. Okay. So, so it's not expecting a trade war. Right, it really isn't. It's we, not discounting a trade war. It it's not expecting it. In, it sure. Has not priced it in. So why is it not pricing it in? Well, the administration ran trade, 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 trade. It's not pricing in because the market is essentially telling us it doesn't expect uh, trade tariffs to be dramatically increased. Essentially. Okay, and this is something we, I think, analysts would be do well to keep an eye on as time goes on. The issue with all of this is that the market, the, there's an old adage: the market buys the rumor and sells the news. Right. It buys when it expects things to happen, and it sells when they actually happen. It is buying on the expectation of increased fiscal stimulus. It's buying on the expectation of lower taxes. It's buying on the expectation of lower regulation, and it's buying on the expectation of uh, no trade war. Right. And if that materializes, it will sell off a little bit. When these things happen, when corporate taxes are actively are actively cut for corporations, there's going to be no effect in the market because it will have already priced in that effect. Right. When uh, they finally break shovels on building whatever they want to build and they start buying American steel and all this other stuff, there's no effect on the market because the market's priced in this effectively happening. That's right. It actually sells off a little bit. 
But if these things don't happen, mm. the market is right now pricing in that there's a very good chance that those three positives are going to happen and the negative is not going to happen. If the positives do not happen or the negative starts to occur, the trade tariffs start to increase, the market's going to sell off. And I expect the market to sell off. The market, our expectation should be at some time in 2017, we are shown a correction of 10%. It's going to happen. Okay. It, it happens every year. It's not something that you can go 12 to 18 months without occurring. And so when that occurs, the correct course of action is to remember that this is temporary. It's a temporary setback. And that over time, what we can bet on is that corporate earnings are going to be increasing over time very dramatically. And you don't know when the corrections are going to take place, but you know that they don't continue to go down. They stop at some point and the market starts to appreciate upward. Mm -hmm. So the correct course of action, if you can't time when the correction is going to occur and all this stuff, is you just stay invested. And if you think about this, if you were able to get out uh, before 2008 and get back in, you know, assume you missed the absolute bottom, but you got back in right when it came back to 20% below, all that activity involved in that would not have generated that much greater returns for you from just holding the market. The reason is the market's higher than where it was in 2008. Right. So trying to time it throughout all that time period to miss the down periods was immaterial. And to think of a time to sell it at its peak. Sell at the peak, buy it at the bottom. It's, it, you can't be done. Because the market's very efficient at discounting information and you're predicting, you're trying to predict the mass movements of crowds uh, that either are uh, behaving perfectly rationally or are behaving according to these mass emotions effectively. Sure. Yep. And so they, they became very, uh, there's a tremendous amount of negativity. And with the new administration, there's, there's building this tremendous sort of positive optimism is coming back. Right. People are starting to think the, the car companies are going to buy the steel, you know, all these things are going to occur. And you have to ignore the pessimism and to some extent ignore the optimism mm -hmm. and look at it statistically. And statistically, what you see is the market appreciates at about a 7% annualized rate of return over multiple years. So the best course of action is to try and get into the market, ignore the fluctuations, hold for a 10-year period, and look to double your money over that 10-year period. Yeah, that sounds quite reasonable, I'm sure, to most people who are it invested. It sounds reasonable. It sounds very easy to do. It is very, very difficult. And the reason is that if, if you once you invest in the market, you have these massive fluctuations that occur on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis that are, I don't want to say divorced from economic activity, but there's there's nothing that's changed fundamentally in the market besides the administration, which is a big change to justify these movements on a daily basis. Right. When you're talking about trillions of dollars and the market moves, you know, 1%, uh, you're talking about tens, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in market cap that is uh, created or destroyed. And there's not really anything happening different today than yesterday. So there, there is this sort of volatility in the marketplace. You tend to get these very, very small gains, very, very large losses. But if you can hold during that entire period, the expected return of doing that is very positive. Right. And the effect of compounding over long periods of time will cause your, your, your assets to increase. Where you run into problems is when you try and say, listen, I don't want to lose any money in the market. I only want to make money in the market. I want to avoid the market when it's going down. You, you, can't, uh, you can't accomplish your goal doing that. All if right. you're not able to lose money in the market, you cannot make money in the market. That sounds crazy, but that's the way it works because you can't predict when these corrections occur. Mm -hmm. All you know is that they will occur 
the probability of them occurring are independent over time. The fact one occurred yesterday doesn't mean you can't get one tomorrow. It just means you have the same likelihood chance of occurring. Right. But the statistical expected return of this, of the small movements upward and these large movements downward, is about a 7%, 6 to 9% annualized rate of return. So all you have to do is hold on for long periods of time. Right. Well, let's talk about this bull market now, which is so the third longest U.S. economic expansion since 1900. And it seems like there may be another leg up. And the bull market is now in the second is now the second longest in history. Uh, you'd think that some analysts out there would be saying, is the end near? It comes back to this concept of the returns of the market being independent. OK, the best the best uh, analogy I can give is a roulette wheel. Whether you get black or red on the roulette wheel is an independent event. And there's something called the gambler's fallacy, which is that after you've received black numbers 10 times in a row, people start to think, well, the chance of me getting another black number in the next roll of the roulette wheel is very, very low. Right. But really, the chance of that black number or the red number appearing is the same. Exactly the same. The same thing is with the market. The, the length of time that the market has gone up has absolutely no bearing on what happens next. There's a 70% chance 2017 is going to be an up year, and there is a 30% chance 2017 is going to be a down year for the market. That is true if we came off three down years. It is true if we came off eight up years. So statistically, each period of time in the market is an independent event that is effectively modeled by about a 70% up chance of a positive return and a 30% chance of a, a negative return. And that's exactly what we have. So the fact that it's the third longest, it's the second longest, it is the longest, it's got to end soon. Again, this is the this is not correct. It's not a correct way of looking at the market. So don't even think about that. Don't even think about that. What you should be looking at is what is going to happen to earnings, what is expected to happen to earnings, what is going to happen to interest rates, and what is expected to happen to interest rates. If earnings go higher than what are expected, the market is going up. If interest rates go higher than what are expected, the market is heading down. Great. Let's take a short break. This is a good time for that. Um, we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Please stick with us. We're the Steady Investor, sponsored by Zach's Investment Management. Be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 1-800-918-3114 or to learn more, go to info at zax.com. Again, that number is 1-800-918-3114 or go to info at zax.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. 
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. This is your co-host, Mark Vickery, joined by Mitch Zaks, the other co-host. He's the portfolio manager and founding principal at Zax Investment Management. Uh, Mitch, we were talking about uh, oh, basically just the markets in general, but let's specifically go to Q4 earnings because okay. we're right in the middle of Q4 right, right now. We saw um, uh, some reports coming out from Caterpillar this morning mm-hmm. from Ford. Uh, one thing I found interesting, uh, Ford did well in revenues. I think it was the second best uh, quarter ever as far as revenues were concerned, $10.4, million, $10.4 billion in the quarter. But uh, the, the company also took a big write-down in the quarter, part of which was a $200 million scrapping of plans in its for its plant in Mexico. Right. Now, that seems to be directly related to President Trump. I, When evaluating corporate earnings reports, there's a tendency to look at earnings from what are considered continuing operations. Right. So if you look at these sort of non-recurring items, you tend to discount them and you say, what were the earnings relative to expectations? What we have found over time, though, is that companies that continue to have non-recurring items uh, don't have high-quality earnings. So if every quarter there's a write-down, there's this. Core earnings are great, but there's a write-down. and it's sure. just, So it, generally speaking, though, the key question is uh, with Ford is what were the earnings relative to core earnings, and that's going to drive what happens to the stock price. Uh, I think there's an overestimation in the media of sort of the effect of the administration on corporate earnings. So the question is, does Ford sell more cars under this administration or this other administration? Mm-hmm. Well, are, is unemployment lower? Uh, is discretionary income higher? Right. Those are the key questions. The effect that the administration can affect these broad macro uh, issues uh, can determine whether there's a real effect on earnings. But in aggregate for the market, it's going to come down to whether interest rates rise quicker than what are expected right. and whether earnings are stronger than what are expected. And so far, part of the rally in the last quarter was due to the new administration. But part of it was that the earnings reports weren't as bad as what some people were expecting across the board. Right. Well, we're seeing uh, earnings gains for the second quarter in a row, too, and after that, a long earnings a recession. Very, right. So remember a couple quarters back, we were talking about year-over-year decline in sales, year-over-year right. decline in earnings. Mm-hmm. We're starting to see year-over-year uh, gain in earnings. Right. And that's coming off an expectation of year-over-year flat earnings. Okay. So they're not excited that, my my goodness, earnings are growing at low single-digit rates and sales uh, you know, are up at low single. They're, they're excited because they're saying, well, our expectations are that they're going to be flat. So again, it's the expectations built into the market and whether those expectations are met. Do you think, go ahead. No, go ahead, Mark. I was going to say, do you think that there's almost a game being played though, where analysts will um, kind of uh, expect a little bit lower and then the companies will outperform every quarter, let's say two, 3%, uh, they'll beat their bottom line by a few cents, uh, that kind of a thing. There is a, there's an old saying, I forget the actual term, but for people 
in uh, in, in various uh, management roles. They try and promise low and deliver high. So you want to keep expectations low, and then you want to surpass those expectations. Nowhere is that more evident than in uh, corporate management of uh, of uh, quarterly earnings estimates. Right. So they want to keep the if if they believe that they're going to have a good quarter, they want to kind of surprise the market with an earnings report. So they want to keep the expectations low. What they don't want to do is leak that information out to various analysts by saying, "Oh, it's going to be a great quarter. It's picking up." They want to keep expectations low. Uh, you know, so they underpromise and overdeliver. I mm-hmm. think is the term that people uh, tend to use. And the good uh, investor relations departments at these corporations do that. They tend to be the larger companies. Yeah. So a larger company will tend to be sophisticated enough to sort of underpromise and overdeliver, and they'll make sure they keep uh, analyst expectations low, so that when they report, they show a good report. Uh, because they'd much rather have the analysts lower their expectations during the quarter and then surprise at the end and have the headline being positive earning surprise uh, than to get the analysts right in line with what they're doing and then to report uh, in line with their expectations. The smaller cap companies have a harder time managing expectations of analysts. They're not as sophisticated and they don't have the same level of transparency uh, in terms of what their earnings may or may not be. So they're, they're less likely to manage their earnings. So you see greater earnings management in larger companies. Uh, and But the fact is the market is aware of this. And when I say, I say expectations are greater than, uh, you know, the earnings report are greater than expectations, it's not just because analysts were guided to have low expectations. That was the expectation of the market. And that was reflected in the stock price in the market. Right. And that stock price went up because the earnings that were announced were greater than the expectations. Right. Also seems like larger cap stocks have more revenue streams so they can smooth they have out. more revenue streams. So, so the lumpy. old thing is, you know, IBM can always find a, a penny worth of earnings someplace. Right. That's right. Right. So they're coming up. They're, they're three weeks before their earnings report. They're missing by five cents. They could either say uh, what, what sometimes companies do is when they realize they're going to miss their estimates by a large amount, uh, they throw their kitchen sink in. So they try and get, if they're going to miss by three cents, they're like, instead of missing by three cents, why don't we miss it at, by six cents? Okay. Keep expectations really low, and then next quarter we will do extremely well. So there are these issues with earnings management that uh, companies, if they know they're going to miss, will try and miss by more uh, than what they could miss at because they want to take all the positives and put it in next quarter mm-hmm. and take all the negatives in this quarter. So you're going to miss by this quarter, and you have things that could go to this quarter or to next quarter. You take all the negatives, you put it in this quarter, so you get all the bad stuff out, and then next quarter you have all your positive stuff occurring. Right. Okay, so accounting, sleight of hand, notwithstanding. It's, it's not a sleight of hand. It's <laughs> earnings management. You're it's right. Not, you're right. You're, you're asking these companies every 90 days to report what their corporate earnings are going to be, uh, and they're very large companies. I mean, there's massive accounting departments, and so that you do see this earnings management occurring. But the market's movement is not the market is not manipulated by the corporations. What is what occurs is the corporation does this to kind of get a bump at the end of the quarter. So it, 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 it provides for potentially a trading strategy to try and identify those companies that are under that are keeping expectations low and they're going to report a positive earnings surprise. And that's why positive earnings surprises are generally above uh, 50% continually. 
Yeah. It's like, you understand what I'm saying? If the analysts were doing, if the analysts' expectations were completely in line, the percentage of companies reporting positive earnings surprises would be 50%. But it's not. It's always about 60%, 70% mm-hmm. of the companies are reporting positive earnings surprises. Right, right. For what, much of what you're saying. But I was going to say that in Q4, we're seeing uh, strong results from the big banks, from finance, uh, from the finance industry in general. That is a direct result in some ways of the interest rate hike and yes. promises of more interest rates. Hikes coming in, in 2017 and 2018, correct? Greater upward sloping yield curve helps the banks. Right. They borrow at the short end. They uh, they lend at the long end. Uh, if you have inflation, that that's very bad for banks, but there doesn't seem to be that much inflation. And you just have a rising upward sloping yield curve and the differential they seem to make more money on. And it seems to be helping regional banks more than money center banks. Oh, is that right? Yes. Yeah, so large, very, very large cap multinational banks they're exposed to the U.S. They're also exposed to Europe. They're exposed to Asia. It's sluggish. They're sluggish, right? The uh, community, the, the the regional bank in the United States is exposed to uh, the Northeast. Is exposed to the Southwest. And so, if the U.S. economy is the one that's getting upward sloping yield curve, and the economy is growing, and things are are growing in the U.S., then the rest of the world remains relatively sluggish. That's going to disproportionately help these. Uh, regional banks in the United States relative to these large multinational banks. Okay, and how about deregulation? If uh, those are four deregulation, well? also again helps the regional banks more than the multinational. All banks. right, multinational bank already has massively readjusted what they're doing uh, to have a you know. A, if you think of it, the regulation serves as sort of a barrier to entry to the smaller banks to compete with the larger banks. Oh. So the larger banks have a more extensive compliance. Uh, they've already adjusted for all these rules and regulations. The smaller banks are like, well, we're not going to move into that area. We're not going to move into that area because of these regulations. And uh, as those regulations are reduced, it helps the uh, smaller banks more than the larger banks, uh, which is also why you're seeing the Russell uh, 2000 do very well. A large portion of the Russell 2000, uh, you know, uh, over 20% is, is, is are in banking stocks effectively. And mostly regional banks. Regional banks. Smaller, smaller banks. banks. And they're going to the ones that are benefiting the most by the administration changes. Right, right. Oh, great. Okay, so let's move on to tech then. That, that's, yes. this is We're right in the middle of a uh, tech earnings season too. So we've seen uh, good results if you want to consider Netflix uh, a tech company. Yeah. But I believe we have Google after the bell today. Um, what are we seeing uh, or is there anything that you anticipate for uh, Q4 earnings from the, the tech sector as a the whole? The issue with the tech companies is that if trade war occurs, we won't say trade war, we'll say tariffs start to increase or uh, protectionism okay. starts to increase, the companies that are going to be hit the hardest are the technology companies. It will because not, they do so much business overseas. If you're a steel manufacturer in the United States, and there's trade protection. You're like, okay, I can deal with this. I'm not going to sell steel overseas. That's fine. Right. If you're Facebook, if you're Google, if you're Netflix, if you're Amazon, and suddenly a, a trade war develops with Europe, uh, Europe's first response is not to say, okay, we don't want to buy these goods and those goods. It's to easily prevent these technology companies from entering their markets. So okay. it's, and it's very easy. It's it's easy for them to hit back at the technology companies. It's harder for them to hit back on the tariffs on the goods uh, because they, they maybe maybe we don't sell this good to Europe. We we're not net exporters. We're net 
importers of goods. So if they want to hurt the United States, what they would do is start passing all these uh, changes in rules and regulations that affect these very, very large multinational tech companies. Right. So I mean, Facebook's goal is you know, they're going to have uh, these few people, but it's going to be used worldwide. So what happens is uh, China says, okay, you're not going to buy our tires anymore. All right, we're not going to, they're probably, they're not letting Facebook anyway, but we're definitely not going to let any technology company into the, into China. I was going to say, we've seen a little bit of this already. We've seen this. So the problem is that we're the, if there is protectionism that starts to rise, where it starts to hurt the U.S. companies is more on these global multinational tech companies Mm -hmm. than it is with other exporters. Other exporters, they need the goods. That's why they're buying them, right? So the technology, they're like, well, we'll you know, and they're they're very, um, they want their own tech industry. So they're like, okay, let's prevent uh, the U.S. from coming in with their new technologies and we'll develop the technologies uh, domestically. And that's why Silicon Valley would get hit hardest uh, by a potential uh, trade war because it's the easiest for protectionism to be hit against, essentially. Okay, this could have a, a, a bigger effect than a, a normal sector would, let's say, on the market as a whole, though, because tech is such a huge uh, component of that. Is it's, it, you know, the, the tech, is, uh, tech is very important for the market. It's not as important uh, for the economy. It doesn't tend okay. to employ large numbers of people. That's true. Facebook doesn't Facebook have many Facebook doesn't employees. have many employees. So it's 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 the effect on technology is really uh, you know, if the administration is correct, they, they want more jobs. You don't get more jobs by creating regulations that are beneficial to uh, Netflix. Netflix doesn't need to hire that many more people. Right. They just need uh, you know, net neutrality, and they need uh, to be able to have uh, non-collusion amongst the uh, content partners, right. and they need uh, open borders uh, so that everyone can put Netflix in there in every country, and they need open intellectual property so that they can, uh, when they stream the videos to these other countries, so people aren't downloading them and selling CDs and things of that sort. Right. So what Netflix needs and uh, is open borders and low protectionism and strong protection of intellectual property and uh, immigration to get uh, computer programmers over uh, at, you know, at, at, at reasonable rates and things of that sort. And the administration is saying, no, we want jobs in these uh, areas that, uh, that, that turn the election. Right, and and that's not going to that's not going to happen. Those are manufacturing jobs. Those though, right? jobs are not going to happen, no matter how big Netflix, Facebook, Amazon, True. and Google becomes. It doesn't it, matter. It, it doesn't matter. They're not going to hire. Amazon's going to have robotic uh, distribution systems in in twenty years or ten years. Right. So you're you're not talking about um, you're, you're talking about uh, regulatory changes or or political changes that are designed to help certain segments of the economy. And it might work uh, initially relatively well, but over long periods of time, it, it can't be a good thing uh, for the market. What's, what's gonna happen is you, you can't, when, when there's sort of new technology that's causing disruption, you can't ignore it effectively. Right, okay. Well, Mitch, I think we're gonna take a short break here in a moment. There's well, a few minutes left, but I first wanted to say to listeners of The Steady Investor, uh, for more information about how to best invest your assets for retirement, call Zach's Investment Management right here in Chicago at 
3114. And there you can discuss at length your risk levels and investment strategies that are best suited for you and your family. Uh, also, you'll get uh, somebody on the phone who has the same kind of positive outlook with this new, uh, new the new digs, the new environment down here uh, up on the 43rd floor. I think we floor. also have a, a research report, don't we? Or oh, that's right. I want to talk about that. Right. So call that same number, 800-918-3114, and we will send you a free stock market outlook. This is written by uh, Chief Strategist John Blank, who was on the show last week, by the way, and it's a very interesting conversation we had. Always a uh, very comprehensive write-up that he's got. Uh, the new one will come out in February, so that's, what, a, a week or so away. Um, I believe a week from tomorrow we'll see the new stock market outlook. Uh, but call today anyway. We'll give you that. We'll, we'll put you on the list for that, and we'll send you the one for January as well, see how we did. Um, so let's take a short break, Mitch, and we're going to come by. We have two minutes left. All right, so let's say, uh, let's before we uh, move on to another topic, okay. uh, any final words would you say on what to expect uh, for Q4 earnings uh, going forward? I think generally Q4 is going to be positive. Um, I expect my expectation for 2017 is the S&P 500 uh, should appreciate by about 7%. Yeah. And okay. that's sort of the base rate. And when you bet against the base rate, it has to be because you're seeing something uh, that the market is not correctly discounting. And so I think at some point in time, we're, we, we will have a correction in 2017. Uh, but my estimate is that we're going to end 2017 about 7% higher uh, than where we are currently. And where are we right now, one month in? One month in, it's a, we're up a slight, I think it's maybe up about 1% or something okay. of that sort. So I would say over the next 12 months, maybe half a percent on average, uh, but it's not going to be half a percent each month. There'll be months when we're up uh, many percentages, and there'll be a month or two when we lose 6 or 7%. That's a good way and to look so, at and, it. But the, the belief is, and, the, the, and it's based on data, is that over long periods of time, the base rate for the expectation for the market to appreciate at about six to nine percent above whatever the risk-free interest rate is, mm -hmm. is accurate. It's what happens over time. Right. And uh, the more uh, it'd be great to say, well, you buy when the blood is in the streets, and that's when you invest. In, you, you, it, it's almost psychologically impossible to do that, and uh, you can never quite tell when that is the case. So if you sat around and you got out in 2008, you wait, well, I'm going to wait for things really to get bad. And yeah. in 2009, it's not, it's going to get worse. It recovered. It's, you never get back in. And that's the problem. And yeah. the people who make money in the market over long periods of time are able to gain exposure to equities and to stay invested over long periods of time. I don't expect a fixed income to do as well as it has been historically. Uh, I am looking for maybe two interest rate hikes in 2017, okay. uh, but I don't expect uh, bonds, fixed income instruments to do as well as they have done over the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, you know what? That's a good place for us to stop. But let's, let's pick up this conversation then after this word from our sponsor. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zach's Investment. Uh, we're going to take a short break and be right back. So please stay with us. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. 
Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 1-800-918-3114 or to learn more, go to info at zax.com. Again, that number is 1-800-918-3114 or go to info at zax.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. Yeah, I'll give out that number one more time, because this way you can call into the show and speak directly uh, to portfolio manager and founding principal at Zax Investment Management, Mitch Zaks, the co-host of The Steady Investor. He's right here. So that number again, 866-472-5790. We'd love to hear from you. Matter of fact, next time uh, we start uh, next week, I'm going to give out that number a little bit more okay. earlier often. And we can maybe get a conversation going with people who have questions about uh, their own investments. I think that would be a, a nice thing to do. Uh, let's go to... We were just talking about interest rate hikes, and you mentioned, uh, first of all, that you think there will be two interest rate hikes this yeah. year. Uh, what's, I, I thought the, the over-under then uh, from analysts that I've been hearing from was three. Yeah, it, I think there's – I mean, you look at the 10-year Treasury yield, and right before the election, it was at about 1.8%, 1. 1.9%. 1. And currently, as of uh, this week, it's, it's about 2.4%. That's huge. That's a huge jump in a very, very short period of time. Mm-hmm. And what likely is going to happen is if you look at a long-term chart, you're looking since the, around the 19, uh, early 1980s, 1982 probably. Okay. You've seen interest rates, uh, the 10-year Treasury rate just fall dramatically. And the question is, what is going to happen in the future? Most likely, uh, are we seeing a blip off the bottom and it's going to go down further? No. Most likely, we're seeing sort of a bottoming out and you're going to see interest rates uh, start to rise over time. What's keeping interest rates lower are the same forces that are downward, putting downward pressure on inflation, globalization, mm-hmm. and uh, the effect of technological change. And so uh, likely what you're going to see is you're going to see interest rates rise. They're, I don't think they're going to rise much more dramatically than people are expecting, but I do expect them to rise. And I would expect five years from now, 10 years from now, the 10-year Treasury yield to be much higher than where it is currently. I would not expect 10 years from now for the 10-year Treasury to be uh, 2.4, 2.5%. Okay. Uh, if it is, the market's going to be at stratospheric levels. Right. Because if, if, if interest rates stay that low and earnings continue to recover, the present value of that future earnings stream uh, for equities is, is just going to go through the rough. So I expect interest rates to rise a little bit. I expect earnings to rise. I expect the market to go up. But I expect there to be some downward pressure on the returns uh, from fixed income investments. I've been saying this for a while, and I've been surprised by the level that interest rates have gone lower. Right. And so the real question is whether the lower interest rates are a result really, even though people don't completely attribute it to, to the quantitative easing by the central banks. Central banks are buying bonds. They're buying all these bonds. They're forcing interest rates to remain low. 
Everyone knows the central banks are buying bonds. Everyone knows the central banks will come in and start buying bonds if interest rates start to go up. So everyone says, well, interest rates are going to go low. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Interest rates stay low. The central banks are stopping their bond buying. They're right. stopping it in the U.S. They're stopping it in Europe. They're going to stop at some point. Well, and when that ECB happens, still has ECB it going is still on, going but it's, 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 going, it's going to be tapering off. And so as these taper off, it is reasonable just from a sort of common sense perspective to expect interest rates to rise. Mm -hmm. You had the central bank. People probably under, underestimated the ability of the central bank to keep rates lower for longer than anyone was anticipating. But now they're backing off. Political pressure is being applied to the central bank. The new administration is saying audit the, the Federal Reserve Bank. Yeah. The net result of this is going to see less intervention by the U.S. central bank. They, they, I'm right. not saying they, they, it has to, right? If, if, if it comes to the meeting and they say, well, do we keep the bond buying? Do we do this? Do we do that? They say, well, you know, let's not trigger an audit. Let's just go ahead and uh, not do anything. So there's going to be some pressure on these central banks, on the U.S. central bank, on the Federal Reserve, not to engage in activist policy as much. And that's going to spread overseas. And, you're, and the foreign central banks are also going to probably uh, stop their bond buying at some point or taper it down. So it's reasonable to, to expect interest rates to rise. In a rising interest rate environment, it, dis it hurts equities and it hurts bonds, but it disproportionately affects uh, bonds. So in a rising interest rate environment, if things are rising because the economy is accelerating, stocks actually do relatively well. Right. Bonds will, though, come under pressure. And so my expectation is not necessarily a bear market for bonds, uh, but, uh, for instance, a, a, a downward pressure on, uh, on bonds going forward. Okay, very interesting. Now, uh, bond manager Bill Gross wrote recently, uh, he said, watch the 2.6% level. It's more important than the Dow 20,000. 20, it's more important than $60 a barrel oil and more important than the dollar-euro parity. 2.6% level because he's what expecting it to perhaps jump in one no, direction. No, because he's a bond manager. So if you're a bond manager, <laughs> the most important thing in the world is what happens to the 10-year treasury yield. Right. Everything else is a distraction. If you can correctly predict where that 10-year treasury yield is, you could be a very successful bond manager. But what's he insinuating here? Is, is he, he looking at 3% he, or implying what? implying that the most important thing, he's implying the implication is the asset prices are high across the board. Equities, real estate, pipelines, timber, whatever asset there is, uh, is high across the board because interest rates are low. Mm -hmm. And that if interest rates rise dramatically, asset prices are going to come down. That is correct. If, if you see some massive increase in interest rates that was not expected by the market, it is a negative for all financial assets out there. Uh, with the exception of maybe some market neutral strategies or things of that sort. Okay. Uh, but generally speaking, any asset, that, any financial assets that's priced based on the discounted value of future cash flows has to go down when interest rates rise. But if rates go up, but they don't go up dramatically uh, because the economy is recovering, it can be very good for the equity markets and not that great for the bond markets. Okay. The bond market, if interest rates go up dramatically, gets decimate. If interest rates go up a little bit, it gets hurt. The equity market, if interest rates go up a little bit because earnings are recovering, does relatively well. If interest rates go up dramatically, it also gets hurt. Right. So it's like you, you essentially have a greater effect on bonds from interest rate changes than you do have stocks. And stocks are a better 
hedge against a rising interest rate environment than uh, owning fixed income uh, portfolios. So what he's saying is he is concerned of saying that at some point in time, there is some sort of tipping point based on the 10-year treasury yield. And at that level, people start fleeing or are actively trying to exit the bond market. What I expect to happen is you're going to see interest rates gradually rise over time. And this movement out of bonds into equities mm-hmm. is going to accelerate effectively. And it'll be a boon for the market once it, again. It should be if, if the interest rates rise because the economy is recovering and the Federal Reserve is no longer engaging in quantitative easing, that is generally going to be a benefit to the market. The, the market does well following initial interest rate hikes by the Federal Reserve. And the reason is the Federal Reserve does not hike interest rates in a vacuum. They hike interest rates because they see the economy recovering. And it's a combination of the economy recovering that it's really the economy recovering that drives the equity markets higher. So we had our first, you know, I I think it was, uh, when was it? It was in December, December. I I think, Mm -hmm. was the first interest rate hike. And in a year, it was the the, the previous. What do we see? Markets done relatively well. Right. And so, again, what we're still at very low levels. We're still at very low levels, but one or two rate hikes, two or three rate hikes, not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. If you start seeing more than 25 basis point rate hikes, 50 basis points, 75 basis points, the market is going to come under pressure. So the concern of the bond managers is they're sitting at the end of a 30-year uh, bull market in bonds when interest rates went lower for longer than anyone was anticipating. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, well, this can't last. And, and they're... The bubbles, if there are bubbles in the financial markets, are in the fixed income space when you're looking for very, very high yield and uh, in the high yield space where you're looking at these uh, junk bonds and they're priced uh, higher than they've ever been before. uh, Those are the places where I would expect something uh, to occur. But for instance, if you look at uh, yields relative to foreign yields, the differential between the U.S. bonds uh, and sort of European bonds, either mm-hmm. German, France, or Japan bonds, is the highest level in almost uh, 20 years. Right. So, so what does that tell you? That's saying that U.S. bonds are uh, high yields mean low prices. So U.S. bonds are cheaper relative to the the bonds on these these other places, effectively. So, okay. uh, effectively, what, what what that's telling you is that you know that they're seeking safety in. Uh, They'll continue to look uh, for U.S. Uh, for U.S. bonds, bid up the price of those bonds. As the price goes up, the yield would would come down effectively. Okay. And do you think that one of the main, or maybe the main reason that the Fed would decide to raise more than a quarter point, uh, let's say the next meeting or the meeting after that, would be because they see inflation as kind of getting hotter than they expected it would? Yes, but there are these political constraints. I'd like to think the Federal Reserve is completely independent of the political situation. Mm-hmm. But if the Federal Reserve does not want more oversight from the Congress, they want to be less likely to raise rates effectively. And we're now historically, have we seen there's a no politicization? The politi- Federal Reserve is one of the most independent bodies, uh, political entities in the world. There's almost there's no ability of the Congress right now to influence the Federal Reserve and say, we don't want you to raise rates. But if the Congress is now saying we want to start uh, having more control over the Federal Reserve, the last thing the Federal Reserve is going to do is is give them something that uh, can cause that to go forward. And that would be raising rates. Raising rates slows the economy down. 
Right. So, right? Are you, so are you suggesting that maybe they let the next time pass, even if they see on the horizon we might see? Uh, because if, if, if you were concerned about preserving the Federal Reserve Board's independence, yeah, what you would want to do is do exactly what the administration wants you to do for four years and hope for another administration. It sounds extraordinary, though, to right? hear that. I mean, I mean wouldn't, wouldn't that be the rational course of action? Is you, would, you would expect them to do to not – the last thing they're going to do is do something that's going to get – the administration all worked up because it's going to increase pressure on them. Did we so what does the administration during- want? The administration wants growth. It, want, it wants increased spending. Yeah. It wants low interest rates. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Donald Trump made his empire borrowing from people. Yes. The lower interest rates are, the better off he is. Uh, he remembers when interest rates went up and he had, you know, he had all these issues and everything. Of that Yet sort. the so Fed has a responsibility toward uh, keep curbing uh, inflation. It has two mandates. One is to stop inflation from occurring and two is to try and get uh, full employment. And we're pretty close to full employment yes, but now. There, okay, so before the new administration, there was a belief that, that uh, Janet Yellen was going to be dovish and she was going to let the economy run hotter for longer mm-hmm. than what people were expecting to really try and put unemployment lower uh, because of all the disruption that occurred in the labor markets uh, due to the recession. Uh, And now after the new administration, she now has another reason to let the economy run hotter for longer, which is to stop uh, intervention from the the, uh, Congress, the congressional bodies in in terms of oversight over the uh, Federal Reserve. So all of this points in my mind towards two rate hikes as opposed to three. Now, it's a very unconventional analysis, uh, and uh, I, I would hope an economist would say, no, absolutely not. The Federal Reserve is completely independent, and no, they're going to make their decision. The data they're to gonna, I, I really hope that's what they do, uh, but my, my intuition is that there is going to be some uh, political calculus going on, and as a result, you might see the Federal Reserve lay off raising rates as much as they would in a administration that they're they're sort of uh, more in tune with, effectively. Okay, and so and even if policy changes, which we've seen a lot of executive orders, where you expect yeah. to see change sooner than later. But even still, once things are enacted, it still takes a while for it really to kind of to hit the reality. Right, the Federal Reserve though can have a dramatic and immediate impact on the economy. Right, they go into a meeting and they say we are changing the Federal Reserve rate of the rates that banks uh, can uh, borrow and lend from the Federal Reserve. Uh, and uh, they're engaging in open market bond purchases. That has an immediate effect on interest rates, has an immediate effect on the entire economy. What okay. people uh, can borrow to buy houses, whether they get car loans, uh, what corporate earnings are going to be uh, because they're paying interest on debt. Those interest rates stay lower for longer. Our earnings uh, are, are effectively higher. So my expectation is not that, yes, 1.8% to 2 point or 1.9% uh, to 2.4% is a very, very strong move. And if you were to annualize that move, you'd be like, my goodness, uh, that's, you know, 60 basis points uh, in the course of, uh, let's say, two or three months. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's 2.4% over a year. Right. Uh, the interest rate is going to be 4.8% at the end of uh, January 2018. Um, I don't think it is. I think you're going to see a couple, two interest rate hikes, and then you're going to see them sort of lay off. And as a result, uh, you're going to have a low interest rate environment where you're going to have earnings of corporations doing relatively well. And the key sort of macroeconomic wild card has to do with the protectionism and the trade tariffs. Right. And right now, the market is not pricing in any trade tariffs, any protectionism. And if we continue to see that, things will hummel along well. You have to remember the U.S. is really 
there's a huge differential between the large cap U.S. equities and the U.S. economy. The large cap U.S. equities are multinational corporations. Right. Ford, GM, their growth is not really dependent on people buying more Fords in the U.S. or more GMs. Yes, their, their growth is dependent upon being able to sell cars overseas. Right. And so what you, the, the real question for the market in 2017 is whether the protectionism that's uh, proposed is going to come to pass or not. And Mark, I'll turn it back to you. No, I don't fantastic. Know. This has been The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zach's Investment Management. For Mitch Zaks, I'm Mark Vickery. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for? 